People often say to me, uh, when you go to Tibet or Nepal, do you have cultural shock? I say, no, the shock is coming back here. And I truly mean that. Meet a man from Maryland who became a mental health professional and advocate on Maui and also produced about 30 films so far. We'll show you how his unlikely journey unfolded and what he's learned along the way about the search for happiness. Next on Long Story Short. One-on-one engaging conversations with some of Hawaii's most intriguing people. Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox. Aloha mai kako. I'm Leslie Wilcox. I've had the pleasure of interviewing individuals over a period of decades, and I'm still struck by how often the element of chance plays a role in remarkable life stories. The man you're about to meet is no exception. In fact, serendipity is a recurring theme in the story of Dr. Tom Vendetti of Wailuku, Maui. This psychologist and Emmy-winning filmmaker turned a series of unexpected twists into two intertwined careers that have enabled him to do good in the world while pursuing his personal quest for happiness. On this edition of Long Story Short, we learn how Tom Vendetti's lifetime of journeys add up to the journey of a lifetime. You were adventurous. You were hitchhiking far away at age, what, 17. You were, you were heading out with your thumb and friends and going to rock concerts and spring break and other experiences. Yeah, I always had this drive to see the world. And, uh, and I, surprisingly, my parents were okay with that. But I, it was nothing, nothing for me to hitchhike to New York and see the play Hair or go to a rock concert in Indiana or even New Orleans to the uh, Mardi Gras. Did you start working early? I started working right out of high school. Primarily, it was during the Vietnam War days, and I was going to be drafted. So I applied for a conscientious objector status, and I only had a couple weeks before I was going to be shipped off, so the clock was ticking, right? So anyway, I went in front of this panel, and it was uh, community members, some clergy and military, and they just interrogated me. This kid, 18 years old, you don't love your country, you don't want to fight for your country. And I tried to explain to them that um, it's not that I wouldn't want to fight for my country. I would. It's just this particular war that I didn't believe in. And within a couple weeks, the letter came and it said that I was still 1A active, going to be, you know, drafted. And my mother said, I can't believe that this is happening. I said, well, mom, it's happening. She goes, I think it's a mistake. I said, come on, Mom, they don't make mistakes like that. She said, well, I'm going to call them tomorrow and see. And I was working construction with my father at the time. So we went to work, and then when I came home, she took this sheet and and put it out in the front of the house and must have taken a spray can or something, put one zero on it, which meant conscientious objector. And I walk in the house, and I said, Mom, what's going on? She said, well, it was a mistake. They made a typographical error. Wow, that's a, that's a huge error. It, that's it's a just huge one. Uh, one and, I, I, and again, I was just elated. And, and uh, because of that, though, I still had to serve my country for two years. So uh, I had to find a job in the helping field, either you know, uh, doing community service or something. And that's where I got a job working at Shepherd Pratt Hospital as a psychiatric aide. And at the time, I had no interest in psychology, which, again, it just opened this door 
uh, that I've been, uh, you know, doing most of my, in fact, my whole uh, adult life. And you ended up getting a PhD. And I also got a, uh, a, a master's degree in clinical social work from the University of Maryland. After that, uh, I decided to move from Maryland to Flagstaff, Arizona. Back then, there were very few services for the mentally ill, so we created a program for them that was, got a lot of attention. And a lot of that attention came from a program called Adventure Discovery, where we would take the mentally ill people hiking and on river trips and things like that. Why? Well, again, there was some research coming out at the time that it was very therapeutic. And we actually did some uh, testing to verify it, which started my film career, by the way. We took 10 mentally ill people on the San Juan River. And prior to doing that, we did some post pre and post tests for anxiety and depression. The filming part came where I asked a friend of mine who bought a new camera back then. We did our testing and made this documentary film. And the uh, research that we did showed that not only the clients benefited, that the depression dropped and anxiety, but also the staff. That is interesting because what you're telling me is that by seeking not to fight in Vietnam, it led you to your career and to your vocational passion. Right, exactly. So I came back and I put this film together and then I became hooked. Because I was the kid that was very shy in school. You know, I would know answers to the questions and wouldn't raise my hand. And when I realized through film that I could actually communicate, because I had a lot to say, you know, that, that this was my ticket for, for achieving that. At the same time he was building his psychology career and developing his passion for filmmaking, Tom Vendetti yearned to see the world. And that's what first brought him to Hawaii, initially drawn to the big island of Hawaii because of his fascination with mountains. It gets back to my early hitchhiking days. I always wanted to see the world. I had a girlfriend at the time, and we decided that we were going to travel around the world. The first stop was Hawaii. So we arrived in Hilo because of Mauna Kea and Mauna Loa. We ended up spending two years there because the reality of, you know, we needed to make some money. <laughs> so we started one of the first uh, halfway houses for the mentally ill over there, which is part of the mental health Kakua's system right now. And then after we got the money, we ended up in New Zealand. And someone at that point said, where are you going next? And I said, well, I really love mountains. They said, well, you should need to go see Mount Everest. And I said, where's Mount Everest? You didn't know where Mount Everest no, was. No, I was so naive. And look at, look, at, uh, look at where much of your life has been focused That's now. That's right. So I had no clue. And they said, well, you have to go to Kathmandu and, and Nepal. And I said, all right. So we ended up there. And we, it was May. And the monsoons came in a little early that uh, year. So people were saying, you shouldn't go up to Mount Everest, you're not going to see anything. You know, there'll be too many clouds and be socked in. I said, well, I came all this way, I'm gonna go anyway. On the plane, there was this man sitting in front of me and he was in English, kind of broken English, pointing out all of the mountains. And I noticed a lot of the, the people were paying attention to him. Like he was somewhat knowledgeable, but mm -hmm. I didn't pay much attention to it. And then when we got off the plane, he and his daughter walked up to me and said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to Mount Everest. <laughs> he said, well, would you mind if I walk with you? And I thought he just wanted to practice his English or something. Mm -hmm. As I look back at it, I am sure he was 
you know, trying to protect me and, 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 and take care of me. But as we were walking on the trail, people were just going, Namaste, almost in reverence to this individual. And then finally I heard someone say, that's Tenzing Norgay. I went, Tenzing Norgay. He, he was a Mount Everest rock star. He was. And in that part of the world, he was a hero, you know. Because, because he was the Sherpa who went up Everest with Sir Edmund Yeah, Hillary. he was. Tenzing Norgay and Hillary were the first two people to summit Mount Everest. So when I heard that, I said, what are you doing here? He said, well, I'm on my way to meet Hillary. National Geographic is doing a 30-year special about uh, summoning the mountain. Would you like to be my guest? And I said, of course. For a, a week, you know, we hung out together. And then when we were getting up to Kumjung, where Hillary was, first they walked up and embraced. The cameras were going and so forth. And then he introduced Peter. That's Hillary's son was there. And then Dickie, uh, Norgay's daughter. And then he said, I want you to meet my friend Tom. And here I am shaking hands with <laughs> Hillary, going, what is this all about, right? And then from that day on, it just changed my whole life. And I've been going back now for 30 years. So you were living on the Big Island, went away to see the world, and, and then what? Then How'd I ended up back? back in Flagstaff. And when I returned, uh, I got a job at the guidance center again. My girlfriend and I split up at the time. And my wife, Nancy, was also getting a divorce from her husband. She was working there. So it all seemed to kind of click at the same time, and then we fell in love. And we decided to get married on Maui. When we got back uh, to Flagstaff, we started contemplating the idea of moving to Hawaii. Before we knew it, we applied for jobs, we landed them, and we've been living on Maui now for 26 years. And did you say she was in the same? Yeah, she's a clinical social worker. We're uh, very happily married, and it's been a good, good thing for me. Among Tom Vendetti's talents is a background in music. This expertise serves him well in filmmaking, helping him to craft just the right mood for each project, as well as build bonds with exceptional composers and musicians. In high school, I understand you were not just a jock, you were a band geek, I think is the expression people <laughs> use. You, you did both. Yeah, I played the trumpet from third grade all the way into uh, college and was in the Baltimore Colt marching band. So I got to see my uh, heroes, Johnny Unitas and Raymond Berry back in those days, which was quite thrilling for me. And that's another of your the things you uh, discovered early in life that you continued on. Music has just been a continuing theme, and you use it in all of your productions. Yes. and Original that, music, too. And that's the, uh, in terms of editing, that's my favorite part, putting the music to the uh, scenery, especially beautiful scenery like, you know, mm -hmm. the Himalayas and so forth. And I was so, so thrilled to have Kaola Beamer, you know, work on this latest film. He, we went to Kathmandu, and he had the opportunity to record original music with seven local uh, Nepalese, you know, musicians. And it was just fascinating to watch and also beautiful to listen to. And it literally brought the film to life as far as I'm concerned. Well, I wasn't surprised to find out that they had partnered with you because when Keola was a guest on this program years yes. ago, he told me that he had become a Buddhist right. and that his mother, the you know, Auntie Nona Beamer, had become a Buddhist, and they both said it was it, it was very Hawaiian in its right. in, in, in in its values. Yeah. 
being around Kayla Beamer and Moana's friends, again, that's uh, such a treasure, something that, that I, you know, love both of them dearly. And who's Paul Horn? Paul Horn is a very famous uh, flute, flautist, flutist. Okay. He's known as the father of New Age music. He's a Grammy Award winner and has probably 46 albums out. And he passed away not too long ago, but uh, he literally said, Tom, if you ever want to use any of my music, it's yours. We became that close over the years. You traveled with them quite a bit. Yeah, we, we traveled to uh, Tibet. I think it was 1992, I asked Paul if, because he had played in the Taj Mahal and the Great Pyramids, if he would like to play in the, in the Patala Palace in, in Lhasa, Tibet. He said, man, if you can make that happen, we're there. I said, okay. And believe it or not, we pulled it off. And that was my first documentary film, Journey Inside Tibet, that was picked up by PBS Plus. And went, uh, Which was one of the programming streams of PBS. Yes. So I needed to find someone to narrate that, right? And I always really uh, liked um, Chris Christopherson. He was a person that I looked up to, and I knew that he lived on Maui. Mm -hmm. So I had a VHS tape of uh, what I shot and the music, but I didn't know Chris's address. But I, again, knew that he was on Maui. Put it all in a package, and I wrote to Chris Christopherson, Hana, Hawaii, with even out a, without a zip code. Because <laughs> I was fairly new to Maui at the time, put it in the mail, and several uh, weeks later, I get this call from this man Vernon White. He happened to be Chris's manager, and he was calling from L.A. He said, "Chris said I'll do it." I said, "I thought it was a friend joking." I said, do what? You know? <laughs> he said, "He'll narrate your uh, your film," and I said, uh, "Really." And I said, well, how much will it cost? Because I didn't, Chris Christopherson. He says, how much money do you have? I said, I don't have anything. <laughs> and he said, well, that's what it will cost you. Oh. Yeah, and Chris came over to Kihei, sat in a recording studio and did that and was so gracious. And it was humbling for me to be in his presence. That again, it just kept me wanting to make more films, and, and, and uh, especially after it got on PBS. I think you're the first filmmaker I've ever met who doesn't raise funds, but who earns the money in, a, in another job and pays for it himself. Right. That, that's, uh, a lot of, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of travel bucks. It is. But I would be doing it anyway, traveling. I, that's doing it my whole life. <laughs> With psychology, of course, I had to go to college and, 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 and get degrees and so forth. But I'm self-taught when it comes to filmmaking. So I uh, put a lot of energy into it, and again, it's just a passion that I love doing, and, uh, and it's become a voice for me, so it fills that need, too. The editing part became more like therapy for me. It was extremely therapeutic mm. because of the content and the people you know, that I interviewed and so forth, and hearing their words, and then getting to relive it again through the images you know, that I shot. It, it, I never considered it even to this day of being work. The bottom line with uh, making the film was, like I said, we, I would get a bunch of friends and we would make it slash vacation shoot. My wife has been very supportive in that too, Nancy, 
Um, in fact, she's gone on all of these uh, journeys with me. She loves the outdoors. She loves hiking and trekking and so forth. So uh, we invite friends and, and, and hopefully, you know, I have a plan, an idea in mind of tr in terms of what I was trying to tell in terms of the story. In places like Nepal and Tibet, if you go in with a fixed plan, you're really setting yourself up for disappointment. You need to be open and just kind of let it all unfold. And, and, uh, and if you do that, it's amazing. It often turns out better than the original plan. At least Is that that's right? been my experience. Yeah. So you don't create a plan, at least a plan B first? In that part of the world, it's, it's better not to be uh, that attached to anything. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That sounds very Buddhist of you. It's very Buddhist. <laughs> Buddhism and even today's world of psychology just go hand in hand. If you get into a lot of what the Dalai Lama says about negative thoughts and, you know, and, and so forth. That's cognitive behavioral therapy. That's what training, therapists do. Training yourself not to have negative thoughts. Exactly. And, and reframing things in a positive light, along with uh, the buzzword in psychology now is mindfulness. It's a Buddhist term, right? Mm -hmm. I could relate to that on, on both levels. This last trip that we took with the Beamers in Nepal to film uh, the Tibetan Illusion Destroyer was about exactly what I'm talking about. They have a festival up there every year called the Mani Rimdu Festival with the purpose of destroying illusions, thoughts, or you know, the way you perceive things that lead to human suffering. Tom Vendetti of Maui has seen plenty of that suffering through several decades practicing psychology as well as fighting to improve Hawaii's mental health services. And then came a time when his own mental and physical health was challenged with a diagnosis of prostate cancer. Basically, when I found out that 99% of my prostate had cancer in it, it was like being hit in the head with a two-by-four, a wake-up call. How old were you? 55. You were 55. So, so I went and had the radioactive seeds, 122 of them, put in my prostate. And at that time, I got pretty depressed, to be honest with you. I was lying in bed, and I said, I need to, I need to go to Nepal. I was talking to my wife, even though I felt kind of weak and so forth, but I just said I needed to go there. When I got up into the mountains, it was that quiet time again and being able to hike and be into nature that, you know, that just brought me back to life. In fact, that's when I made When the Mountain Calls on that journey. And then reflecting on all of these, you know, the 30 years of my travels in Nepal. I'll never forget when I got to, back from base camp, I made it all the way there and back. I was in Lukla again at that airport and I called my wife and she said, I've never heard you sound so happy. I felt a true sense of inner peace, true happiness. I contemplated the meaning behind all the wonderful experiences I've had and of how the mountains kept calling me. They have taught me that life's magic is always right here in front of us. Your film about the um, gross national product of Bhutan. Gross national yeah, happiness. Happiness. Yeah, happiness. Yeah. I mean, it's such a... Other nations measure it by, you know... Gross national productivity. And now, but this is the, the, the ability to be happy and the, the presence of happiness. Uh, and, and it's, what are the measurements for that? Well, there they base it on four pillars. One is an honest, transparent government. Another one is respecting nature. 
And uh, they're basically say if you get up in an environment where all the trees are cut down and the rivers are polluted, you're not going to be happy. The other one is preserving culture. That's something that they cherish in Bhutan and they don't want to lose it with Western influence. And the other one is economic stability. You have stability. to have a, not growth, but not, stability. Yeah. There have been many, many studies saying that above the, uh, your basic needs being met, happiness improves a little bit above that with income. But beyond that, there's no correlation at all. Income doesn't bring you more happiness. Exactly, right. And when I went over to the Bhutan initially, I was very skeptical. I, I thought, is this for real? But I came back a believer, and I think it could be a model for the world. In different uh, places like Norway and that part of the world, they've been embraced it. But uh, in terms of Western uh, capitalistic types of societies, we have a long way to go if, if we want to take that on. <laughs> but that, that film won an Emmy, too, which was kind of cool, you know. You came home as an Emmy-winning filmmaker. Yeah, yeah, that was surreal. <laughs> you know, when you're sitting in the audience and you're thinking, well, I didn't have anything really prepared, but when the spotlight hit me, I thought, oh, my God. And I walked up, and there was these two big giant television screens, right? And I looked up and saw myself up there. <laughs> I just kind of focused on one person in front of me and started talking. Because you're the filmmaker who wants to be on the other side exactly of the camera. Exactly right. I was like, here's the kid that didn't want to put his hand up in school. You know, you know I know that that airport that you went to uh, at Everest is very um, small, but what are yeah. the chances that you'd you know, that you'd get together with the, the Sherpa who, who summited Everest with Sir Hillary? Well, see, that, that's a really uh, interesting question. I wasn't one of those people that just thought things happened by chance. But I've come to the conclusion, it took me a long time to get here, that things do happen. Again, it can be on a spiritual level, it can be on a different plane than this objective level. And that was a real awakening for me. And that's the only way I can explain meeting, uh, you know, Norgay up there and Hillary. You know, when I walked away from that experience, I was thinking, again, can't explain these things you know it's like you just got to be open to them <laughs> what do you make of it because you know we hear stories of that appear to be accidents and random chance all the time but these these happenings take people to places they otherwise never would have gone part of what i learned is that number one you need to show up just simply put your in a self in a situation to allow things to happen and if you do that, they often do. It's something that, uh, you know, you can't necessarily measure. It's got to be probably more on a spiritual level that I'm trying to get in tune with. Have you found a spiritual path? Are you still deciding? I'm still always going to be on that path. I, I'd be the first to say that I really don't know <laughs> what's going on. I'm still working towards that's so-called enlightenment or nirvana or whatever, however, whatever term you want to put it in. Have you stopped going back there now? To? Uh, to to uh, the Himalayas? No, I, in fact, I just got back. Oh, okay then. <laughs> and I had the opportunity to film His Holiness the Dalai Lama a few years back. I asked him what the significance of Mount Kailash was. So I'm making a film right now that's focusing on three areas, preserving the uh, Tibetan culture in China was the first question. The second one was the significance of Mount Kailash. And the third one is happiness. In fact, I'm almost finished that one. Well, what does he say about happiness? 
Well, he said he has no uh, way in the world to know how to fix happiness on a global level, but on an individual level, it's possible. And it gets back to what we were talking about, um, calming your mind, um, again, ridding yourself of negative emotions or thoughts that create negative emotions, and back to that kind of basic Buddhist teachings. Did you see uh, your Sherpa friend again? I asked him, I said, is there any place in the world that you would like to see or to hike or trek? And he said, the Grand Canyon. I said, well, that's where I'm from. When I get back, I will write to you and, and we'll hike the Grand Canyon together. And uh, by the time I got back, he had passed away. Oh, yeah. too bad. Yeah. But I, I was thinking, you know, here I am traveling all the way to Nepal to find happiness, and, he, and he's saying the Grand Canyon. Is it right in my backyard? <laughs> you know? Do you think both that both your career, your dual careers, really, do you think those are all about finding happiness or defining it? Well, it certainly ended up that way. Initially, like I said, I had no desire at all in psychology, and um, I always wanted to see the world, but I really didn't even know about Buddhism or, you know, the teaching of Buddhism or the philosophy behind it. But that's really what has impacted my life in terms of the way I see the world now. At the time of this conversation in 2019, Tom Vendetti has retired from full-time psychology practice and devotes most of this time to filmmaking. He's working on new projects, and we're proud to give some of his films a home here on PBS Hawaii. Tom Vendetti has learned from prominent people in different parts of the world. He says he's also gained insight from the years with his Maui patients, whom he admires and respects for their strength and intelligence. We want to thank Tom Vendetti of Wailuku, Maui, for sharing his search for happiness. Perhaps he's inspired you to focus on what's truly important in your own life and to show up in life, because that's where chance, serendipity, can take you on an unexpected, life-changing journey. For Long Story Short and PBS Hawaii, I'm Leslie Wilcox. Aloha nui. I've been uh, asked by KLA to make a film about anti-nona femur, and, um, and it's something that I'm really looking forward to. That'll be my next film. So I feel honored to be even be, to make the film. She's had other films made about her, but it's been primarily, you know, talking heads, people talking about her. The goal of this film would be to capture her spirit and to capture it through her words, uh, through her, you know, hula and chants and the songs that she's written and the beauty of the islands. For audio and written transcripts of all episodes of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, visit pbshawaii.org. To download free podcasts of Long Story Short with Leslie Wilcox, go to the Apple iTunes Store or visit pbshawaii.org.